We've been using 1 Timothy as our starting place for a general discussion of the pastoral epistles. And uh, with chapter 3, we come to the polity of the church as Paul established it in the churches that he began um, on his missionary journeys, and as he established them, uh, even when he was absent, or perhaps especially when he was absent. And uh, this evening we're looking at uh, the combination of elders and deacons. We'll be looking at the characteristics, um, and, and also, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks we'll be looking at a very controversial part of the leadership structure of the Pauline tradition, and that is the role of men and women in the church. So uh, hopefully this passage, this section, um, will do us, do us good by the grace of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to be an overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine nor pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, How will he manage the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Deaconesses must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us the guiding and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit as we read these words from Paul's pen, that we might understand the truth that is in them, and that we might gain teaching and guidance in the ministry of this congregation. Pray, Father, that you would show us that if any way that we have been in error, that we would see it and that we would be willing to change it. And also, Father, that if any way we have followed your word faithfully, that we would be strengthened in that and continue it. Father, we look to your word as alone, the authority and the guidance that you have given your people. And we ask that you would solidify that commitment and plant your word deeply into our hearts and minds. Father, we ask these things for the edification of your church through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
The theme that we've been pursuing the last few Sunday evenings with regard to the order, the polity of the church, is as to whether or not Paul in the pastoral epistles contradicts himself, whether or not in advocating a stated ministry, as it's so often called in seminaries, he is not violating the, the charismatic church that he advocates, for example, in his letter to the Corinthians. But I think the conflict between an ordered ministry and a charismatic church is unnecessary. I think it is founded upon a misunderstanding that I hope to uh, present to you this evening. The conflict between Paul in 1 Corinthians and Paul in Timothy and Titus is one that is made up within the church. It is not real. And um, there is a, a solution to the seeming contradiction uh, between the two sections. The liberal solution, of course, to this conundrum is to say that these various letters were written by different people. And it's very common, even among conservative evangelicals today, especially in academia, to accept what was a, an unheard of principle from the 19th century, and that is Paul was not the author of many of these letters. For example, it is almost universally agreed among scholars that he did not write Ephesians and Colossians, and that he did not write First and Second Timothy, that he was a charismatic, not a Presbyterian. Uh, and therefore, we can solve the problem by saying that uh, he just didn't write that letter. This is no conflict between Paul and Paul, because we now know that Paul didn't write all these. Of course, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, and Isaiah didn't write all of Isaiah. It's a bit ridiculous. Why do these men even bother studying the Bible? when all they're trying to do is destroy our confidence in it. Fortunately, they, they have no basis because everything that we're reading bears the mark of the apostle, including his own name. But the liberal view where you have different authors is, is not benign. It's not just an academic uh, exercise that we should just accept in order to be acceptable in the modern world. What it does is it introduces confusion into the Bible and takes away direction from the church. If the Paul of 1 Corinthians is not the Paul of 1 Timothy, what are we supposed to do? I guess we choose which one we like or come up with a third. You see, it just introduces confusion and there's no, there's no benefit. It's a line of reasoning that is detrimental to the edification of the church. But as I said earlier, fortunately, Paul's letters were quoted by so many other writers quoted as being from Paul in the early or the later part of the first century and into the second century, that we really have no good ground to doubt that he wrote the letters that come to us under his name. And so most evangelicals don't accept the liberal solution. We rather come up with another solution, which is called pragmatism. In other words, we just basically do what works for us. We come up with a church structure that works in our culture, in our time, or according to the way we want it to work. And we simply say that the guidelines that Paul gives are, are simply that, they're guidelines. But they're not really rigid commandments or the way we ought to do it. The church, therefore, has the freedom to come up with its own polity. Well, that destroys the authority of Scripture and replaces it with the authority of the church. And that has been a very damaging phenomenon throughout the last 2,000 years, 
When men in the church decide when and where to apply the scripture or to ignore it, the scriptures are no longer the authority that guides the church, but rather the church that interprets the scripture. The church is no longer living under the word of God, but actually ruling over it. We see that, of course, and as Protestants, we, we say, well, you know, that's what happened to Rome with their traditions and their councils. They negated, they emasculated the authority of Scripture and substituted in its place the authority of the church. But can we say as Protestants that we have not done the same? Whenever we have a polity, a practice, a doctrine that is not according to Scripture, but rather according to the Book of Church Order or the 39 Articles, okay, or, or um, any other document that the church has developed, have we not done the same thing? Removing the authority of Scripture, replacing it with the authority of the church, or rather, the men who lead the church. We profess in our statements of faith that we believe that the men who wrote the Bible were inspired, that God breathed in and through them, giving us His Word. But then we go and substitute the Word of men, whom we do not claim to be inspired, but rather, we say that they were, they were wise according to their age. And they came up with a, a system of church government that, that really works, even though it's not the one that Paul sets forth by the breath of God in his word. And so we, we come to these conundrums. We come to Paul in 1 Corinthians talking about the Spirit moving and distributing severally as he will the gifts of the Spirit. And then we come to Paul in 1 Timothy where he is establishing elders and deacons or bishops and deacons. Elders is in Titus, bishops in Timothy. And we can't see how to bring the two together. So we end up splitting with one part of Christianity going with the charismatic teaching and another going with the, the polity, the church office, because there's a, a perception that a Holy Spirit-led church will be chaotic. And granted, that perception is grounded in biblical history, because Corinth was chaotic. But Paul wrote a letter to rebuke them for that chaos. He did not write a letter to remove the work of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in that entire letter, we do not read him. If any place he was going to establish a stated ministry, it would have been Corinth. Because those people needed some control. The whole letter was not about them using illegitimate gifts, but misusing legitimate ones. And so Paul seemed to think, that you could have a charismatic church, and we'll define that in a little bit, that is an ordered church. I don't know what the average Presbyterian thinks about the, the passage that they so frequently use to describe the church, the fact that the passage comes from 1 Corinthians 14, again, where Paul has actually told them about speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, and that they should desire the greatest, greater gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. But he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, I think that's a very important phrase. He doesn't say, as in all my churches. Now, Peter's churches, they're a bit wild, but my churches. No, he says, as all the churches of the saints. 
It wasn't Peter or Paul against Paul, Paul against Peter, Paul against John. It was God's church wherever it may be because God is not a God of confusion but of peace. And then he goes on to say, and this is, he summarizes it all in a verse that has since been co-opted by Presbyterians to the point of being a stereotypical joke. Let all things be done decently and in order. You know, we kind of laugh at our Presbyterian brethren for using that verse so often. All things done decently or properly and in order. That's from 1 Corinthians talking about the use of gifts, which you don't really see happening in the average Presbyterian church. Let all things be done decently or properly and in order. That means that you can have an orderly, charismatic church. Now, I have to admit that in Angela and my experience with charismatic churches, we didn't really witness one, but it can be done. That you can have a church in which there is a stated ministry, a church in which there are elders and deacons, and yet where the Holy Spirit is freely in control and distributing to each and every member, the every member ministry that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. I think the key to understanding Paul with Paul is to understand that the offices of bishop and deacon are no less charismatic than the gifts of prophecy and tongues. You see, we think of bishops and we think of deacons as officers in the church, and our mind immediately goes to a, to a rigidity and a structure and an order, and the person and work of the Holy Spirit is really not in our thinking anymore. Whereas over in the charismatic church, we think it is the Spirit of God who is causing and, and enabling all of the believers to do whatever it is He desires them to do. But I think it's interesting that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the word office isn't there. And in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, the word gift isn't there. They're added by our English translators because we don't really think of the bishop as, an, as a person, but rather as an office. I don't know that we originally thought that, but it literally says, if anyone desires bishop, it is a good thing that he desires. And in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, concerning spirituals, or graces, charismata, the word gifts, which is a, a Greek word that is used in Paul's letters occasionally, is not in that passage. And I think by adding those nouns of office and gift, we create a dichotomy that doesn't exist in the Scripture. And it clouds our understanding that both bishops and deacons and prophets and evangelists operate by the very same Holy Spirit if they operate biblically, if they operate according to God's Word. Both Sections of Paul's teaching are evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit within the church. That means that a church with a stated ministry can and should be charismatic. Now, that may make some of you nervous, and unfortunately I'm not going to be preaching on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. I'm preaching on 
the pastorals. But I think it's an important corrective. I think it is important because whereas the charismatic church is often, as it was in Corinth, to excess, it is anarchic. It is without control and order, and, and in that sense, it is actually a detriment to the health of the body, as it was in Corinth. It, it is the, the temptation or the tendency of, of orderly churches to quench the Spirit, to establish such a rigidity of operation that the Spirit really doesn't have any room to work within the church. And that is no less detrimental to the growth of the body than the charismatic error. We, we can't be safe on this. And granted, I, I will tell you from experience, it is far safer to be in an ordered church where everybody knows what's expected of them, that is nothing, and what's expected of their leaders, that is everything. That's a nice, comfortable, safe place to be. But we can't be there because we will die. And I firmly believe that the Lord will remove the lampstand from any such church, I believe, in many cases, he already has. How does a charismatic church, then, behave in an orderly manner? Well, again, from experience, not very well. And one of the things that I think moved me most powerfully away from the charismatic church was the chaos, the anarchy, the complete lack of, of any direction, any any semblance of what's going on here. What, what is the purpose of this, except for each and every person to do whatever looks right in their own eyes? And many times it was like that. There was no doctrine. There was no teaching. I remember the, the one pastor, he could not finish a single series that the Lord led him to start. That was troublesome. You know, that the Lord would lead him to Nehemiah, for example, and he would get to chapter 2, and the Lord was leading him to someplace else. That, that's the kind of the, the chaos that, that I think may have been present in, in Corinth. Everybody was just doing their own thing. And Paul writes not to take that thing away from them, but rather to put it in order. And so I think it has to be possible for a charismatic church to be orderly, and for an ordered church to be charismatic. Because otherwise, we must deny a very important, in fact, an essential characteristic of the church, and that is edification. We come together, we were talking this morning in Sunday school about preaching and the purpose of preaching, but Paul says this of pastors and teachers he says that they are ministering for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And then he goes on to talk about how each joint and ligament provides that which is needed for the growth of the body into the fullness of the maturity that is Jesus Christ. We're giving that up. Either if we have a chaotic ministry in which it's, it's really a form of spiritual epilepsy, where every member is operating under his own control and not that of the Holy Spirit. Or, on the other hand, we establish such an order, such a rigidity of polity, that the Spirit cannot work at all. We deny him that right in his own house. Order, for Paul, is essential to edification. And edification is why we're here. 
to build up one another, to build up the body of Christ into the fullness of Jesus Christ. But this by no means rules out the free reign of the Holy Spirit. This idea of order. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, I want to read um, verses 4, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. And, and I think we begin to see, and, and we need to look at what it is the charismata are meant to do within the church. In verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Well, that's the edification of the body. For the common good. What was happening at Corinth was that each one was exercising their own gift for their own good. And they were actually becoming competitive, comparing gift to gift. They were losing sight of the purpose of the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, I think it could be said, the Holy Spirit was no longer actually working. Bishops, elders, which I do believe are effectively synonymous, and deacons... How do we tie these two teachings together? Well, I think we do so by understanding that the teaching of Paul and of Peter concerning the gifting of believers shows us that these gifts fall into two categories, speaking and serving. And that bishops and elders on the one hand and deacons on the other become the recognized leaders within a congregation of those two categories of giftedness. They, they cannot be the sole repository of those gifts. That's where the error comes into play with the more rigid, established church, is that we say, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, with ordination, the gifts are given to that man, gifts that then cannot be taken away but are denied to the laity. See, that's where we say, okay, the Holy Spirit has gifted the elder, but he has not gifted anyone else. The deacons have been ordained because they have been gifted with that, but no one else is to do that work within the church. That is to, to channel the power of the Holy Spirit through the leadership of the church, whereas we read, he gives according to his will to each and all. That, that's the thing we have to deal with. Because we do have a stated ministry. We have an orderly church. We have elders who govern the church. And yet we read that the Holy Spirit has given a manifestation of His power and grace. Because that's what charismata is, grace. He has given that to each and every believer. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, And since we have charismata, and the word is gifts in Romans 12 verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in court, according to our faith, in service, in our serving. He who teaches in his teaching. Paul establishes there basically two, although he lists a number after that, two broad categories, serving and teaching, or serving and speaking, because the prophet and the teacher both were speaking gifts. 
Peter, I think, agrees with this as he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, as each one has received charisma, he uses a slightly different word, employ it in serving one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, whoever speaks, let him speak as the oracle of God, whoever serves by the strength which God supplies. Whoever speaks, well, that's a whole bunch of gifts. Whoever serves, well, that's another category of gifts. And we see that of the officers in the church, one is said to be apt to teach the other and to refute. The other is not required to do those things, but rather serves. The word deacon, diakonos, means one who serves. The result of this spirit-defined distribution of grace gifts is to Paul the edification of the body of Christ. That's what he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 8. These things are done for the common good, for the building up of the body. Peter gives us the ultimate goal of the operation of the Holy Spirit, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He gives us a benediction with regard to the true and proper operation of the gifts of the Spirit. So, the lists of the spiritual gifts, and I think you've all, if you've, if you've been believers for any length of time, especially if you were a believer in the 70s and the 80s, you took a spiritual gifts inventory, which was basically a Christianized Myers-Briggs test, you know, looking at your personality and then determining what your gift is. And we, do, we did those things because I think in all sincerity, we wanted to know what our gift was and, and hopefully use it within the church. But I think we need to recognize that the gifts that are in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, that's not an exhaustive list. There are some listed in one that aren't listed in the other. They're, they're not just uh, a, a list that, that Paul had that maybe he just you know, faxed or scanned an email to all the different churches. They were simply descriptions of the manifold grace of God. Manifold meaning multi-sided, variegated. You can't really tell God how he will gift and how he will not gift. If someone says to me, well, I, I believe I have this certain gift in it, and I look at my Bible and it's not in one of those lists, do I immediately reject it? That, no, that can't be because it's not in Romans 12 and it's not in 1 Corinthians 12. Are all gifts still operable? Well, I don't believe that they are. Some gifts were distinctively apostolic. Others were perpetual. And the reason for that is that some were explanatory and revelatory. And those that are revelatory mean they're giving revelation or they're, they're symbolizing and they're confirming revelation from God. And I think that's probably the greatest error within the charismatic movement is their openness to added revelation from that which we have been given in the Bible. And I think that is the point at which we can judge whether or not a gift was apostolic and whether or not it is perpetual. By, by looking at the need of the body of Christ. Do we have need of further revelation? I would say no. 
God has spoken to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He has done in His life, in His death, His resurrection. And that message was explained to us by His apostles. Beyond that, we're on very dangerous soil, very unstable ground. And so we ask the question of the various manifestations of the Spirit, are these revelatory? Do these meet, do these meet a need that isn't there? And that is additional revelation. Or do these meet a need that is always there? The need for teaching, the need for mercy, compassion, administration. I say, yes, they, that need is perpetual in any human society. But I think we can take those gifts, even the ones that we do read, and others that we may not read in the list, and yet are obviously needs in the body, and we can do what Carolus Linnaeus did with the, with the uh, animal and plant kingdom. We can classify them. For example, we can see that prophecy and teaching, tongues and the interpretation of tongues, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, these were all speaking gifts. These were all gifts that were manifestations of the voice. Whereas giving, helps, faith, mercy, administration, and even exhortation, although that combines the two, are really hands. Exhortation being a coming alongside, a giving of support to a fellow believer, speaking and serving, mouth and hands. They divide up the gifts and they also represent, or they, they are, how do I say it, in a sense culminated in the bishop and elder on the one hand, and the deacon on the other. This also teaches us that a deacon, and, and a mistake that is made in so many churches, a deacon is not simply an elder on the on-deck circle. A, a deacon is not an elder in training. In fact, for a man to truly be selected as a deacon or a woman as a deaconess, their gifts have been manifested to the congregation as being serving gifts. You've heard of the Peter principle, whereby a man is raised to the level of his incompetence? Because he does so well at every level that when he finally reaches the level at which he can still do well, he's promoted to the next one where he stinks. And this is a corporate phenomenon, but it's also a church phenomenon. We take a man who serves faithfully and we make him an elder. Because why? Well, he serves faithfully. Well, that's because his gift is serving. He has a serving gift. He does not have a speaking gift. And therefore, his call in the church is to be recognized by the congregation as a deacon. And in that ministry, he will, as well as the other deacons and the elders, he will provide the order that is needed within the charismatic church. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul really, I think, sets this out where he doesn't mention bishops or deacons. However, he says in verse 26, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Now, that sounds like, oh my word. How do you, you know, I, I look at that, I cringe. I really do. You think about a congregate, and I always have when I've read just that verse, because we've experienced that. Angela and I have, and that is, it's just mayhem. You can't quite understand, I could never understand, how the Holy Spirit was in this because it just seemed like every man and woman doing whatever they wanted to do. 
There was no cohesiveness, and therefore there was no guidance or teaching. There was no edification. Paul says it was, it was that way in Corinth. People just loved to hear themselves speak in tongues, even when there was no interpretation. And Paul said, you can't do that. Or do that at home, but in the church. He would rather speak one word that would edify than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. And yet he says in verse 26 at the end, after he said, each one has this and this, there's that every member ministry, he said, let all things be done for edification. If the motive of your heart is not the building up of the body, then either if your gift is serving, stay in your seat. If your gift is speaking, shut your mouth. Because all things are to be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most. I do not know how the charismatic churches that I was a part of got around this verse. Because not only was it far more than two or three, it was usually two or three dozen. It was almost always all at the same time. And you know why it was at the same time? Because we were supposed to be done by noon. You should laugh. That is pretty funny. <laughs> we were supposed to be done by noon. We put this time limit on the Holy Spirit, and so in order to exercise our ministry, we all did it at once. I, I really pitied whoever in that room did have the gift of interpretation. <laughs> like, oh my, I don't know what they're saying. But he says it should be at the most two, at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, but let others pass judgment. Well, who are those others? Who are those others? Well, it doesn't say. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. Not just themselves, but to those others who are gifted the same way. And what is the guidance by which they are to be judged? Well, again, Paul doesn't say here. But I think he says sufficiently elsewhere, it is the Word of God by which all prophecy, teaching, preaching, exhortation, instruction must be judged. And Paul is assuming that in a properly ordered, spirit-led church, there will be order. All this, and he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He goes on to talk about the women keeping silent, for they are not permitted to speak. And we have to deal with that, and Lord willing, we will, as we look at the gifts in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But at the end he says, But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Bishops and deacons cannot be, as I said earlier, the sole repositories of the gifts distributed by the Spirit, because if that were the case, then every believer would be one or the other. Every believer would be a bishop or a deacon. Because I think it's the clear teaching of Paul that the Spirit has given to every single believer a manifestation of the grace of God, a charismata, sometimes more than one. 
perhaps different ones at different time. There are those in whom the charismata of speaking and the charismata of serving have matured to the level of discernment and judgment. This is a matter of the growth of the church itself, within itself, to the maturity that is in Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 4. That is our goal, mutual edification and the building up of the body. Within the body, then, we recognize certain men, certain women, in whom the gifts of speaking or the gifts of serving have not only been recognized, but recognized as mature, recognized as wise, recognized as having been trained over time. And these are the ones that we turn to and say, you are an elder, you are a deacon, you are a deaconess. We give them, by the guiding of the Holy Spirit, what we might call the ordination of the gifts. And they, are, they become the ones within the body who pass judgment as well as nurture to those within the body who are also gifted that way. The deacons should not be subject to the elders as they are in most churches. How can you subject a serving gift to a speaking one? By, by what biblical authority do we place one gift under the other? Rather, the serving in the church, as it is done by every, minister, every person, should be subject to the deacons of the church. And the teaching in the church, which is also beyond just the elders. Now in our small church, that tends to be the Sunday school class. But when we had small groups, other men taught them. That ministry is subject not to the deacons, but to the elders. So that there is a charismatic church in which the Holy Spirit has free reign to do within the church what He determines needs to be done, and yet it is done decently and in order. Far from quenching the Holy Spirit, the elders and the deacons must be filled with the Spirit in order to guide younger believers in their exercise of the same charismata given to them. It is the way Paul has prescribed the Holy Spirit will work within his church. Not chaotic, not anarchic, but also not rigid, not suppressing the Spirit within each believer. That the whole body, being built up by what each joint and ligament supplies, may grow to the fullness of the maturity that is in Christ Jesus. That is what we seek. That is what the, I should say, that is what God seeks for His church. That as a body it is not disjointed, that as a body it is not deformed, but rather it is whole, it is healthy, and it is growing by what the Holy Spirit does through each one of us. Let us pray. Again, Father, we pray that you would guide us in your word, that you would help us to live in such a way together as a believing body that we do not quench the Holy Spirit, but rather that we are open to his leading and to the grace gifts that he alone supplies and directs. We pray, Father, that you might enable us to do this while also doing all things for the edification of the body and properly and in good order. 
We understand that in this way, the body will grow, the body will be healthy, the body will mature into the image of her head, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would enable us to do these things, that the Holy Spirit might have his way with us, that you would guide us by your word alone and not by our own perceptions or feelings, nor by what others have done, nor by what we consider works best, but rather only and solely by your word. We ask that you would do these things for your glory, for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ and for our good and sanctification. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand this evening for the benediction from Romans. Chapter 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.